Chapter Three of the Uncommercial Traveller. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Uncommercial Traveller by Charles Dickens. Chapter Three. Wapping Workhouse. My days, no business, beckoning me to the east end of London. I had turned my face to that point of the metropolitan compass on leaving Covent Garden and had got past the India House, thinking in my idle manner of Tipu Saib and Charles Lamb, and had got past my little wooden midshipman, after affectionately patting him on one leg of his knee-shorts for old acquaintance' sake, and had got past Aldgate Pump, and had got past the Saracen's head with an ignominious rash of posting-bills disfiguring his swarthy countenance, and had strolled up the empty yard of his ancient neighbour, the black or blue, boar or bull, who departed this life I don't know when, and whose coaches are all gone I don't know where. And I had come out again into the age of railways, and I had got past Whitechapel Church, and was, rather inappropriately for an uncommercial traveller, in the commercial road. Pleasantly wallowing in the abundant mud of that thoroughfare, and greatly enjoying the huge piles of building belonging to the sugar refiners, the little masts and vanes in small back gardens in back streets, the neighbouring canals and docks, the India vans lumbering along their stone tramway, and the pawnbroker's shops where hard-up mates had pawned so many sextons and quadrants that I should have bought a few cheap if I had the least notion how to use them, I at last began to file off to the right, towards Wapping. Not that I intended to take boat at Wapping Old Stairs, or that I was going to look at the locality because I believe, or I don't, in the constancy of the young woman who told her sea-going lover to such a beautiful old tune that she had ever continued the same since she gave him the backer-box marked with his name. I am afraid he usually got the worst of those transactions and was frightfully taken in. No, I was going to Wapping because an Eastern police magistrate had said through the morning papers that there was no classification at the Wapping workhouse for women, and that it was a disgrace and a shame and divers other hard names, and because I wished to see how the fact really stood. For that Eastern police magistrates are not always the wisest men of the East may be inferred from their course of procedure respecting the fancy dressing and pantomime posturing at St. George's in that quarter, which is usually to discuss the matter at issue in a state of mind betokening the weakest perplexity with all parties concerned and unconcerned, and for a final expedient to consult the complainant as to what he thinks ought to be done with the defendant, and take the defendant's opinion as to what he would recommend to be done with himself. Long before I reached Wapping, I gave myself up as having lost my way, and, abandoning myself to the narrow streets in a Turkish frame of mind, relied on predestination to bring me somehow or other to the place I wanted, if I were ever to get there. When I had ceased for an hour or so to take any trouble about the matter, I found myself on a swing-bridge looking down at some dark locks in some dirty water. Over against me stood a creature remotely in the likeness of a young man, with a puffed, sallow face, and a figure all dirty and shiny and slimy, who may have been the youngest son of his filthy old father Thames, or the drowned man about whom there was a placard on the granite post like a large thimble that stood between us. I asked this apparition what it called the place. 
and to which it replied with a ghastly grin and a sound like gurgling water in its throat, Mr. Baker's trap. As it is a point of great sensitiveness with me on such occasions to be equal to the intellectual pressure of the conversation, I deeply considered the meaning of this speech while I eyed the apparition, then engaged in hugging and sucking a horizontal iron bar at the top of the locks. Inspiration suggested to me that Mr. Baker was the acting coroner of that neighbourhood. A commonplace for suicide, said I, looking down at the locks. So, returned the ghost with a stare, yes, and Paul, likewise Emily, and Nancy, and Jane, he sucked the iron between each name, and all the piling, Catches off their bonnets or shawls, takes a run, and headers down there they does. Always headering down here they is, like one o'clock. And at about that hour of the morning, I suppose. Ah, said the apparition, they ain't particular. Two'll do for them. Three, all times of night. Only, mind you, here the apparition rested his profile on the bar and gurgled in a sarcastic manner. There must be somebody coming. They don't go Edward down here when there ain't no Bobby nor General Cove for to hear the splash. According to my interpretation of these words, I was myself a General Cove or member of the miscellaneous public, in which modest character I remarked, They're often taken out, are they, and restored? I don't know about restored, said the apparition, who for some occult reason very much objected to that word. They're carried into the workers and put into hot bath and brought round. But I don't know about restored, said the apparition. Blow that! And vanished. As it had shown a desire to become offensive, I was not sorry to find myself alone, especially as the workers it had indicated with a twist of its matted head was close at hand. So I left Mr. Baker's terrible trap, baited with a scum that was like the soapy rinsing of sooty chimneys and made bold to ring at the workhouse gate, where I was wholly unexpected and quite unknown. A very bright and nimble little matron, with a bunch of keys in her hand, responded to my request to see the house. I began to doubt whether the police magistrate was quite right in his facts, when I noticed her quick, active little figure and her intelligent eyes. The traveller, the matron intimated, should see the worst first. He was welcome to see everything, such as it was, there it all was. This was the only preparation for our entering the foul wards. They were in an old building, squeezed away in a corner of a paved yard, quite detached from the more modern and spacious main body of the workhouse. They were in a building most monstrously behind the time, a mere series of garrets or lofts with every inconvenient and objectionable circumstance in their construction, and only accessible by steep and narrow staircases, infamously ill-adapted for the passage upstairs of the sick, or downstairs of the dead. A bed in these miserable rooms, here on bedsteads, there, for a change as I understood it, on the floor, were women in every stage of distress and disease. None but those who have attentively observed such scenes can conceive the extraordinary variety of expression still latent under the general monotony and uniformity of colour, attitude and condition. 
The form, a little coiled up, and turned away, as though it had turned its back on this world for ever. The uninterested face, at once lead-coloured and yellow, looking passively upward from the pillow. The haggard mouth, a little dropped, the hand outside the coverlet, so dull and indifferent, so light and yet so heavy. These were on every palette, but when I stopped beside a bed, and said ever so slight a word to the figure lying there, the ghost of the old character came into the face, and made the foul ward as various as the fair world. No one appeared to care to live, but no one complained. All who could speak said that as much was done for them as could be done there, that the attendance was kind and patient, that their suffering was very heavy, but they had nothing to ask for. The wretched rooms were as clean and sweet as it is possible for such rooms to be. They would become a pest-house in a single week if they were ill-kept. I accompanied the brisk matron up another barbarous staircase, into a better kind of loft devoted to the idiotic and imbecile. There was at least light in it, whereas the windows in the former wards had been like sides of schoolboys' bird-cages. There was a strong grating over the fire here, and holding a kind of state on either side of the hearth, separated by the breadth of this grating, were two old ladies in a condition of feeble dignity, which was surely the very last and lowest reduction of self-complacency to be found in this wonderful humanity of ours. They were evidently jealous of each other, and passed their whole time, as some people do whose fires are not grated, in mentally disparaging each other, and contemptuously watching their neighbours. One of these parodies on provincial gentlewomen was extremely talkative, and expressed a strong desire to attend the service on Sundays, from which she represented herself to have derived the greatest interest and consolation when allowed that privilege. She gossiped so well, and looked altogether so cheery and harmless, that I began to think this a case for the Eastern Magistrate until I found that on the last occasion of her attending chapel she had secreted a small stick, and had caused some confusion in the responses by suddenly producing it and belabouring the congregation. So these two old ladies, separated by the breadth of the grating, otherwise they would fly at one another's caps, sat all day long suspecting one another and contemplating a world of fits. For everybody else in the room had fits, except the wardswoman, an elderly, able-bodied pauperess, with a large upper lip, and an air of repressing and saving her strength, as she stood with her hands folded before her, and her eyes slowly rolling, biding her time for catching or holding somebody. This civil personage, in whom I regretted to identify a reduced member of my honourable friend Mrs. Gamp's family, said, "'I as em continual, sir.' They drops without no more notice than if they was coach or to up from the moon, sir. And when one drops, another drops. And sometimes there'll be as many as four or five on em at once, dear me, a rolling and a tearing, bless you. This young woman now has em dreadful bad. She turned up this young woman's face with her hand as she said it. This young woman was seated on the floor, pondering in the foreground of the afflicted. There was nothing repellent either in her face or head. Many apparently worse varieties of epilepsy and hysteria were about her, but she was said to be the worst here. When I had spoken to her little, she still sat with her face turned up, pondering, and a gleam of the midday sun shone in upon her. 
Whether this young woman and the rest of these so sorely troubled as they sit or lie pondering in their confused dull way ever get mental glimpses among the motes in the sunlight of healthy people and healthy things? Whether this young woman, brooding like this in the summer season, ever thinks that somewhere there are trees and flowers, even mountains and the great sea? Whether, not to go so far, this young woman ever has any dim revelation of that young woman, that young woman who is not here and never will come here, who is courted and caressed and loved and has a husband and bears children and lives in a home, and who never knows what it is to have this lashing and tearing coming upon her. And whether this young woman, God help her, gives herself up then and drops like a coach horse from the moon. I hardly knew whether the voices of infant children penetrating into so hopeless a place made a sound that was pleasant or painful to me. It was something to be reminded that the weary world was not all a weary and was ever renewing itself. But this young woman was a child not long ago, and a child not long hence might be such as she. Howbeit, the active step and eye of the vigilant matron conducted me past the two provincial gentlewomen, whose dignity was ruffled by the children, and into the adjacent nursery. There were many babies here, and more than one handsome young mother. There were ugly young mothers also, and sullen young mothers, and callous young mothers. But the babies had not appropriated to themselves any bad expression yet, and might have been, for anything that appeared to the contrary in their soft faces, princes imperial and princesses royal. I had the pleasure of giving a poetical commission to the baker's man to make a cake with all dispatch, and toss it into the oven for one red-headed young pauper and myself, and felt much the better for it. Without that refreshment I doubt if I should have been in a condition for the refractories, towards whom my quick little matron, for whose adaptation to her office I had by this time conceived a genuine respect, drew me next, and marshalled me the way that I was going. The refractories were picking oakum in a small room giving on a yard, they sat in line on a form with their backs to a window, before them a table and their work. The oldest refractory was, say, twenty. Youngest refractory, say, sixteen. I have never yet ascertained in the course of my uncommercial travels why a refractory habit should affect the tonsils and uvula. But I have always observed that refractories of both sexes in every grade between a ragged school and the old bailey have one voice, in which the tonsils and uvula gain a diseased ascendancy. Five pound, indeed! I ain't a-going for the pit five pound, said the chief of the refractories, keeping time to herself with her head and chin. More than enough to pick what we picks now in such a place as this and on what we gets here. This was in acknowledgment of a delicate intimation that the amount of work was likely to be increased. It certainly was not heavy then, for one refractory had already done her day's task, it was barely two o'clock, and was sitting behind it with a head exactly matching it. "'A pretty house this is, matron, ain't it?' said refractory too. "'Well, a policeman's called in if a gal says a word.' "'And when you're sent to prison for nothing or less,' said the chief, tugging at her oakum as if it were the matron's hair, but any place is better than this, that's one thing, and be thankful. 
a laugh of refractories led by oaken head with folded arms who originated nothing but who was in command of the skirmishers outside the conversation if any place is better than this said my brisk guide in the calmest manner it is a pity you left a good place when you had one oh no i didn't matron returned the chief with another pull at Arokum and a very expressive look at the enemy's forehead don't say that matron causes lies oakham head brought up the skirmishers again skirmished and retired and i warn't a-going exclaimed refractory too though i was in one place for as long as four year i warn't a-going for to stop in a place that warn't fit for me there and where the family warn't spectable characters there and where i fortunately or unfortunately found that the people weren't what they pretended to make themselves out to be there and where it wasn't their faults by choice if i weren't made bad and ruinated ah during this speech oakham head had again made a diversion with the skirmishers and had again withdrawn the uncommercial traveller ventured to remark that he supposed chief refractory and number one to be the two young women who had been taken before the magistrate yes said the chief we are and a wonder is that a policeman ain't at it now and we took off again you can't open your lips here without a policeman number two laughed very usually and the skirmishers followed suit i'm sure i'd be thankful protested the chief looking sideways at the uncommercial if i could be got into a place or got abroad i'm sick and tired of this precious house i am with reason so would be and so was number two so would be and so was oakham head so would be and so were skirmishers the uncommercial took the liberty of hinting that he hardly thought it probable that any lady or gentleman in want of a likely young domestic of retiring manners would be tempted into the engagement of either of the two leading refractories on her own presentation of herself as per sample it ain't no good being nothing else here said the chief the uncommercial thought it might be worth trying oh no it ain't said the chief not be a good said number two and i'm sure i'd be very thankful to be got into a place or got abroad said the chief and so should i said number two truly thankful i should oakham head then rose and announced as an entirely new idea the mention of which profound novelty might be naturally expected to startle her unprepared hearers that she would be very thankful to be got into a place or got abroad and as if she had then said chorus ladies all the skirmishers struck up to the same purpose we left them thereupon and began a long walk among the women who were simply old and infirm but whenever in the course of this same walk i looked out of any high window that commanded the yard i saw oakham head and all the other refractories looking out at their low window for me and never failing to catch me the moment i showed my head in ten minutes i had ceased to believe in such fables of a golden time as youth the prime of life or a hale old age in ten minutes all the lights of womankind seemed to have been blown out and nothing in that way to be left this vault to brag of but the flickering and expiring snuffs and what was very curious was that these dim old women had one company notion which was the fashion of the place every old woman who became aware of a visitor and was not in bed hobbled over a form into her accustomed seat 
and became one of a line of dim old women confronting another line of dim old women across a narrow table. There was no obligation whatever upon them to range themselves in this way. It was their manner of receiving. As a rule, they made no attempt to talk to one another, or to look at the visitor, or to look at anything, but sat silently working their mouths like a sort of poor old cows. In some of these wards it was good to see a few green plants, in others an isolated refractory acting as nurse, who did well enough in that capacity when separated from her compeers. Every one of these wards, day-room, night-room, or both combined, was scrupulously clean and fresh. I have seen as many such places as most travellers in my line, and I never saw one such better kept. Among the bedridden there was great patience, great reliance on the books under the pillow, great faith in God. All cared for sympathy, but none much cared to be encouraged with hope of recovery. On the whole, I should say, it was considered rather a distinction to have a complication of disorders, and to be in a worse way than the rest. From some of the windows the river could be seen with all its life and movement. The day was bright, but I came upon no one who was looking out. In one large ward, sitting by the fire in armchairs of distinction, like the president and vice of the good company, were two old women, upwards of ninety years of age. The younger of the two, just turned ninety, was deaf, but not very, and could easily be made to hear. In her early time she had nursed a child, who was now another old woman, more infirm than herself, inhabiting the very same chamber. She perfectly understood this when the matron told it, and with sundry nods and motions of her forefinger pointed out the woman in question. The elder of this pair, ninety-three, seated before an illustrated newspaper, but not reading it, was a bright-eyed old soul, really not deaf, wonderfully preserved and amazingly conversational. She had not long lost her husband, and had been in that place little more than a year. At Boston, in the state of Massachusetts, this poor creature would have been individually addressed, would have been tended in her own room, and would have had her life gently assimilated to a comfortable life out of doors. Would that be much to do in England for a woman who has kept herself out of a workhouse more than ninety rough long years? When Britain first at heaven's command arose with a great deal of allegorical confusion, from out the Asia main. Did her guardian angels positively forbid it in the charter which has been so much besung? The object of my journey was accomplished when the nimble matron had no more to show me. As I shook hands with her at the gate, I told her that I thought justice had not used her very well, and that the wise men of the East were not infallible. Now, I reasoned with myself as I made my journey home again, concerning those foul wards. They ought not to exist. No person of common decency and humanity can see them and doubt it. But what is this union to do? The necessary alteration would cost several thousands of pounds. It has already to support three workhouses. Its inhabitants work hard for their bare lives and are already rated for the relief of the poor to the utmost extent of reasonable endurance. One poor parish in this very union is rated to the amount of five and sixpence in the pound, at the very same time when the rich parish of St. George's, Hanover Square, is rated at about sevenpence in the pound, Paddington at about fourpence, St. James's Westminster at about tenpence. It is only through the equalisation of poor rates 
that what is left undone in this wise can be done. Much more is left undone, or is ill done, than I have space to suggest in these notes of a single uncommercial journey. But the wise men of the East, before they can reasonably hold forth about it, must look to the north and south and west. Let them also, any morning before taking the seat of Solomon, look into the shops and dwellings all around the temple, and first ask themselves, how much more can these poor people, many of whom keep themselves with difficulty enough out of the workhouse, bear? I had yet other matter for reflection as I journeyed home, inasmuch as, before I altogether departed from the neighbourhood of Mr. Baker's trap, I had knocked at the gate of the workhouse of St. George's in the east, and had found it to be an establishment highly creditable to those parts, and thoroughly well administered by a most intelligent master. I remarked in it an instance of the collateral harm that obstinate vanity and folly can do. This was the hall where those old paupers, male and female, whom I had just seen, met for the church service, was it? Yes. Did they sing the psalms to any instrument? They would like to very much. They would have an extraordinary interest in doing so. And could none be got? Well, a piano could even have been got for nothing but these unfortunate dissensions. Ah, better, far better, my Christian friend in the beautiful garment, to have let the singing boys alone, and left the multitude to sing for themselves. You should know better than I, but I think I have read that they did so, once upon a time, and that, when they had sung an hymn, someone, not in a beautiful garment, went up into the Mount of Olives. It made my heart ache to think of this miserable trifling, in the streets of a city where every stone seemed to call to me as I walked along, Turn this way, man, and see what waits to be done. So I decoyed myself into another train of thought to ease my heart. But I don't know that I did it, for I was so full of paupers, that it was after all only a change to a single pauper who took possession of my remembrance instead of a thousand. I beg your pardon, sir, he had said in a confidential manner on another occasion, taking me aside, but I have seen better days. I am very sorry to hear it. Sir, I have a complaint to make against the master. I have no power here, I assure you, and if I had, but allow me, sir, to mention it, as between yourself and a man who has seen better days, sir. The master and myself are both masons, sir, and I make him the sign continually. But because I am in this unfortunate position, sir, you won't give me the countersign. End of Chapter 3 Wapping Workhouse Recording by Patrick Wallace In the East End of London